Well, good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another Thursday night Bible study. Uh, the food was really great tonight. Does anybody agree? Yes, it was good. It was good. It was hard to get those pickles out, but I somehow managed. I'm really excited to introduce our speaker tonight. Uh, he, he's a godly husband. He's a godly father. He's a committed disciple maker and a small group leader here at our church. And I, I have no doubt that you will be convicted and encouraged by what he's going to share from Exodus this evening. But before he comes up, there's a few things you need to know about him. Now, sure, I could, I could go on and on about his boring oil and gas job. I, I could tell you about how he went to one of those, um, those state universities with too much school spirit. I think it's the, 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 I think it's the reddish brown one. But that's not as fun. So, like everyone else, the guy who's going to speak tonight is, is a mixed bag. There's, there's good things, and then there's less than good things to share. So, the, what I'm going to do to put this together is it's going to be a good news, bad news situation. So, I'll start with the good news, and then I'll share the bad. So, here's the first one. Good news. Your speaker planned an elaborate surprise for his wife during their first dance at their wedding reception. I mean, that is so romantic, right? Here's the bad news. His surprise was that he had the DJ stop the meaningful first dance song, start a Lecrae song, and then he rapped the whole song to his wife for the remainder of the dance. I mean, maybe, yeah. I'm not an expert but that seems less romantic. Okay, good news. Your speaker loves to watch professional sports, and there's one sport in particular that makes him feel, well, alive. Uh, he's an avid fan, and he would love to discuss it with you right after he's done preaching. The bad news is that the sport he loves is professional wrestling. It's true. His favorite wrestler is uh, the all time of all time is the ten time world heavyweight champion, the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. There's a connection between these two things. When I talk about A and M, I talk about Ric Flair. There's the same sound comes to me from out there. I don't know what that is. Good news. In addition to his love for pro wrestling, your speaker tonight also loves. Basketball, basketball culture, on the court, off the court. He loves it all. He loves to play. He loves wearing his Air Jordans, his Jays, as he calls them. He even wore a baby blue Sean John jumpsuit in college, unironically. But he was not just a poser. He was actually a three-time state championship high school basketball team. He was on that team that won three state championships. Here's the bad news. He grew up in New Mexico where there are only 10 teams in the whole state. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Guy Bayer. Goody, are we on here? 
All right. Well, that was quite the introduction there. Good evening, everybody. So we're going to be in Exodus 32 tonight. You can see it on the screen. You can go ahead and turn there if you'd like. Spoiler alert, we're talking about idols tonight. And so if my pride or if my self-respect was an idol coming up here, thank you to Michael for tearing that down with that introduction. Um, And also, I do have to defend my home state of New Mexico here. There's a lot more than 10 schools. There's at least 15 there. So... (laughs) Um, but I'm super excited to be here tonight. It's, it's been so fun. It's been so encouraging to see so many people here uh, at GBC all summer long. I love this church, despite that introduction. I do, I do love this church. Um, this church really is one of the great blessings in my life. My wife, Vicki, and I, we've lived a lot of life here at GBC over the last eight or so years. When we were just dating, we joined a growth group together. So risky move in hindsight. I wouldn't recommend that. Um, but it worked out for us. We actually got married uh, before it was even over. And now a few years later, we've been blessed with three wonderful little boys, ages four and under. Um, it's a lot. And as parents, one of the things we take seriously is our role in discipling our children. And, and one of the ways we do that is through what we call family discipleship time creative name, right? And so it's pretty simple. It's usually at dinner, and we just, uh, we, we open the Bible together, we read it together, we talk about it together, and then we pray together as a family. And at least 90% of the time, you guys, it's an absolute disaster. <laughs> I mean, it's bad. You have, you have no idea how bad it usually is. Our four-year-old, a few months ago, asked us if Jesus has nipples, and, and honestly, we were just happy that he was engaged and he was asking questions. <laughs> and, and so to kick off our family discipleship time, we always start with uh, going around the horn with highs and lows. And so your high is obviously, it's, it's just the best part of your day. You talk about that. And your low, obviously, it's the worst part of your day. And so one thing I've learned over the years from doing highs and lows is that while it's always fun to hear the highs, it's usually through the lows that I always learn the most. Now, if Moses were to join the Baber family for family discipleship time, aside from our four-year-old getting a first-hand account as to whether or not Jesus' glorified body has nipples, (laughs) we would get to hear Moses' high and his low. And my bet is that tonight, that our passage tonight, if it's not Moses' absolute low, it would at least be in the running. And so our task tonight is to see what we can learn from this low point in the life of Moses. So I'll pray for us, and then we'll jump straight into chapter 32, starting off with verses 1 through 6. Father, we come to you tonight confessing our complete and our total dependence upon you for all things at all times. Open our our eyes and our ears and our hearts tonight, Lord, that we may behold wondrous things out of your law that we may see you as you've revealed yourself to be, that we may grow in our love for you and our love for others. Help me to preach your word tonight faithfully with grace and truth. We give you this time, Lord, and we ask that you would bless it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, now to set the stage here, Moses, he's temporarily left the people of Israel. He's gone up Mount Sinai to be with the Lord, to receive instruction from the Lord, including the law summarized by the Ten Commandments. Um, 
Now, importantly, this law had already been communicated to Moses and to Israel. So the people know the Ten Commandments, and what's more, they had promised to obey them. So this covenant between God and Israel, this promise to obey God's law, that was actually confirmed in an elaborate ceremony that takes place right before Moses leaves the people to go up the mountain to be with the Lord. Now, while Moses is away, he puts Aaron in charge. Aaron's his, his big brother, high priest of Israel, super trustworthy guy. Moses has been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights at the time that our text begins. So I'll read now verses 1 through 6 here. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation, and he said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? So, so quick recap here just to make sure that we're all on the same page. While Moses is gone, Israel falls into idolatry. Aaron makes a golden calf for the people. They worship it. Not good. Aaron then, he maybe panics. He tries to somehow make all of this acceptable to God, which explains him building the altar and the proclamation and the sacrifices. And then uh, in verse 6 there, it says that the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. Now, playing seems like an interesting thing to do, following the whole idolatry thing, right? So I did some research. Turns out by play here, Moses isn't talking pickleball. The Israelites didn't break out the spike ball sets. That word play could also be translated as to party or to indulge in revelry. So drunkenness was involved, and we can gather from elsewhere in Scripture that sexual immorality was involved as well. So we don't just have idol worship here. We have a drunken orgy. If I could be so eloquent, this is a total dumpster fire. It's an outright rebellion against God. It's a sudden and a shocking development in the life of God's chosen people. And it leads to an obvious question here, and that question is how? How did this happen to God's chosen people? How did God's chosen people get so far off the rails so quickly? So that's the first question that we have to answer tonight, and I believe we can answer that question in just the first half of the first verse of our text. So I'll read it again for us here. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now let's focus in on that first phrase there, when the people saw that Moses delayed. Now remember, Moses, he's been up on the mountain with God for the last 40 days and 40 nights. 
Clearly, the all-knowing, all-powerful God of the universe didn't somehow forget about time. He didn't lose track of time. He didn't somehow forget that the people of Israel were down at the base of the mountain. Moses hasn't delayed. He's up on the mountain the exact amount of time that God wants him to be up on the mountain. God has a perfect timeline here. Yet the people of Israel, they have their own timeline. And when God doesn't deliver according to their timeline, according to their expectations, they believe a lie. The lie that Moses delayed. But there's a bigger lie that they really believe here. And it's about God. And it's that God won't provide. That God isn't enough. That God can't satisfy. Then after believing those lies, next phrase in verse 1, it says the people gathered themselves together. Now it sounds innocent enough to us, but this is actually an ominous phrase. And we know that because the same exact phrase is used to introduce another rebellion that happens later on in Israel's history. So by gathering themselves together, what the people are really doing here is they're taking the situation into their own hands. They're taking control of their own destiny. They've again believed the lie that God won't provide, that God isn't enough, that God can't satisfy. And then in their arrogance... They assert their independence from God. They turn away. And then they determine what they really need. New gods to go before them. The Lord has displayed his faithfulness to Israel time and time again over the past 31 chapters of Exodus. And all it takes for Israel to prove themselves unfaithful, to fall into idolatry, is half a verse. It happens that quickly. Such is the nature of their hearts. Israel's had their wedding. They walked down the aisle. They gave their covenant vows to the Lord. And on their wedding night, Israel commits adultery. And it all starts with them believing a lie about God, then turning away and self-determining what they really need. So we've seen the how, how Israel falls into idolatry. Next, we need to understand the what, what idolatry really is, to really break it down, to define it. So we're going to camp out on this topic for a minute because it's foundational. And to start here, I want to look at verse 4 of our text in more detail because this verse in particular helps to paint a picture for us of what idolatry really is. So reading verse 4 again for us, it says, Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And more specifically here, I want to focus in on this Hebrew word that's translated as fashioned. Aaron fashioned the gold into the calf. Now, it's not obvious to us in English, but this word is pretty rare. In fact, the only other time that Moses uses it is in Genesis 2. The creation account, where it describes God's creative act, specifically God's fashioning of the first man from the dust of the ground. So this is creation language. Yet here the word describes Aaron's creative act, so the picture that we get is of Aaron playing God. 
It's a dramatic reversal of the created order. In the created order, man was made for one ultimate purpose, to worship God. That is the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever through our worship. Israel here, they turn that created order upside down. They don't worship God. They believe the lie that God isn't worthy of their worship. They turn away, and then they create something else to worship, and that is the essence of idolatry. Now let's define idolatry. So the Apostle Paul, theologically sound guy, he defines it like this. He says it's exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. Exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving created things rather than the Creator. Or said another way, idolatry is simply worshiping anything other than God. It's placing ultimate trust, ultimate hope, finding ultimate satisfaction in anything other than God. Israel here believes the lie that the deepest desires of their heart can be met through a golden calf instead of the Lord. That's idolatry. And so can we pause for a minute to consider the absurdity of that statement I just made about Israel after everything that they've been through? The ten plagues, walking across, across the Red Sea on dry ground. I mean, the breakfast they eat every morning is literally bread rained down from heaven. These are the people who don't believe God is what they really need. And so to use a basketball analogy here, I could continue to dunk on Israel here, right? I mean, this is easy. <laughs> There's just one thing that's stopping me, and it's my own hypocrisy. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so that's the real question for us tonight. Do we not practice the very same things as Israel? Because we are Israel in this passage. Because our hearts, our hearts are the same as Israel's. How quick we are to believe lies about God, especially during seasons of waiting when it feels like he's not present, to believe that he won't provide for us, that he isn't enough for us, that he won't satisfy us, and then to turn to something else we all have an idolatry problem, and our idolatry is just as irrational as Israel's. And the first step to fighting our problem is admitting that we have this problem. It's recognizing this natural inclination that we have deep down inside of us to look for ultimate satisfaction, ultimate purpose, or ultimate worth in created things instead of looking to God. Our hearts are more idolatrous than we can imagine. Now, you might be thinking, I'm not like Israel. I'm not tempted to go bow down to golden animals. That's not my sin struggle. And I'm with you on that. I'm not a big animal guy either. <laughs> we, the Baber family doesn't even own a dog. We like dogs. We just don't own one. <laughs> but what we have to see here. Even for Israel, it's not really about the golden calf. It's about what they think the golden calf can give them. The golden calf is just a means 
to an ultimate end, and it's that ultimate end that's the real underlying idol, the true underlying idol. And those underlying idols for Israel and for us, they're actually the same. So let's start here with the underlying idol of power. That's what Israel was really after here. The Egyptian bull god of this time symbolized strength, power, vital energy. So what about us? Are we a people that worships power or influence or control or celebrity? Do we see it through an ultimate desire for money or for professional success above all else? Is our ultimate identity wrapped up in our material possessions or in our social status or in our friend group? Do we worship power through an obsession with our physical appearance making sure we get that hour in the gym every day when we can't make five minutes a day for God's word? Or what about the idol of comfort? Clearly, Israel idolized comfort. That's one reason why they panicked when Moses left. It's why they complained all the time. Israel wanted things their way. So what about us? In our pursuit of comfort, have the pleasures of this world replaced or diminished our desire for God himself? Do we look for ultimate comfort in binging Netflix or endlessly scrolling social media? You escape to comfort through alcohol or weed or pornography. How has the idol of comfort affected the church? Has it given the church a consumer mindset, looking above all else to have their preferences met instead of giving their lives away? Because sharing your faith Starting a new discipleship relationship, joining a new small group, being vulnerable in community, all of that is inherently uncomfortable. Let's do one more here. What about the underlying idol of approval? And let's talk about Aaron. Why do you think Aaron, the high priest of Israel, if anybody should have known better in this situation, it should have been Aaron, why did Aaron cave so quickly to the people's demands? Because in that moment, Aaron desired the approval of the people more than the approval of God. So is approval an idol for us? Of course it is. We seek ultimate approval everywhere. From a girlfriend, from a boyfriend, from a spouse, from a child, from a parent, from a coworker, from a boss, a friend. We even seek ultimate approval from strangers on the internet. That's how deep this runs for us. Now we all should spend time discerning what these underlying idols are for us because we all have them. And it's not that these underlying desires are bad. Hear me on that. They're not inherently bad. They're God-given desires. It's just that we're looking to fulfill them ultimately in all the wrong places. And I can't tell you guys how convicting studying this passage has been for me because I see my idols everywhere. And I especially struggle with approval and my striving to achieve and to accomplish, to do something to justify my ultimate worth because my heart is more idolatrous than I can imagine. And that's what we learn about our hearts in these first six verses. But what can we learn about the Lord in our passage tonight? And specifically, what can we learn about the Lord in his response to Israel's idolatry? 
So as we continue on with verses 7 through 10, that's what I want you all to be thinking about. What can we learn about the Lord? Picking up in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So the Lord here, he fills in Moses on the dumpster fire back down on the ground, and it is not good. We see God's reaction Things are not getting any better for us in our passage tonight. So it's important to see here that with their idolatry, Israel has not just violated God's law, they violated the two most foundational commandments of God's law. Commandment number one, the Lord says, you, have, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make an idol for yourself. Israel has broken covenant here. And they've done it in the most egregious way imaginable. That's why in verse 7, the Lord now refers to Israel as Moses' people instead of his own. Israel has corrupted themselves. And that word corrupted is usually translated as destroyed. They've turned aside quickly, as it says in verse 8. And then in verse 10, we see what God really thinks about their idolatry. He threatens to consume Israel, to destroy them to totally wipe them out so that he can start over, which begs the question here, why does God react so strongly? Because the Lord, I mean, he goes straight to the nuclear option here. I mean, this is zero to 100 real quick. And the answer to that question lies in who and what God is. And it's a theme we've been talking about all summer long because it's everywhere in Exodus. And it's that God is holy. He's holier than we can imagine. And by holy, I don't just mean God's perfect, absolute moral purity. That is certainly true. But God's holiness is so much more than just that. God's holiness calls attention to all that he is. That he's infinitely greater than anything else. That he's completely set apart from everything else. It's his incomparable majesty that demands our worship and our idolatry is a horrific offense to a holy God. It steals his glory, it destroys his people, and it provokes his wrath, his holy wrath, which is very different than the way you and I think of and experience wrath because God's wrath is holy. It's his complete and total and settled opposition to all that opposes his nature, to all that is evil, because a holy God, a good and a righteous God, must stand against evil with every fiber of his being. That's what makes God God. That's what makes God holy. God wouldn't be holy if he let our idolatry slide. So quick thought experiment here just to prove that out, that God wouldn't be holy if he let our idolatry slide. So think now, if, if you would, uh, of the most heinous crime that you can imagine, okay? 
Then imagine they find the perpetrator of that crime. He's guilty. They bring him in the court before the judge. And the judge just decides to let him go, scot-free, no questions asked. Would that make for a good and a righteous judge? Of course not. And by the way, our idolatry against a holy God is worse than whatever crime that you were thinking about. So if we think God is overreacting here, that he's gone too far in his threat to destroy Israel, it's because we don't understand the holiness of God. And because we don't understand the holiness of God, we don't understand the seriousness of our idolatry. And we have to get the weight of our sin. We can't dismiss it. We can't rationalize it. And above all else, we can't let ourselves become used to it because the most dangerous thing that can happen is that we become so used to our idolatry that it becomes our normal. And then we don't even realize that we've lost our desire for God himself. So this is a call to take our idolatry seriously, to be appropriately broken by our sin, and to practice confession. That's our application here. So in your small groups, with a friend before the Lord, make confession of your sin, of your idolatry, a regular part of your prayer time. And ask the Lord for help. Because there's something else that we see about God's character in these verses. About who God really is and how God in his perfect wisdom can reconcile the seemingly irreconcilable. An idolatrous people and his own holiness. And we see this at the very beginning of verse 7. And if we aren't paying close attention, we'll jump right past it. I think this is so cool. But before anything else, what do we see God do after Israel falls? What's his very first action? It's at the beginning of verse 7. I'll read it. The Lord said to Moses, go down. God commands Moses to go down the mountain to the people. The Lord sends help. In love, he moves toward his covenant people. Whereas Israel's hearts, our hearts are always inclined to move away from God. God's heart is always inclined to move toward his people because in his holiness, God is perfectly faithful. He's more faithful than we can imagine, and he sends help. And in his sending help, we see the means through which a holy God will ultimately reconcile an idolatrous people unto himself. It's through a mediator. It's through a go-between. And the Lord sending Moses as mediator is also the context that we really need to interpret the threat that the Lord made to Moses in verse 10 when he threatened to consume Israel, to destroy Israel. Because why would God send Moses down to the people to help the people if he was just going to destroy the people? He wouldn't. So what God is really doing here is he's inviting Moses to step into his role as mediator, to stand between the Lord's wrath and the people's idolatry. The Lord is prompting Moses to intercede. He's inviting Moses to pray, which is exactly what we have here in verses 11 through 14. It's actually an intercessory prayer. So I'll read those verses now, 11 through 14, and while I do... I want you all to note the basis or the grounds of Moses' intercession. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt 
with great power and with a, white, with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So again here, note the basis of Moses' prayer for the Lord to extend mercy to Israel. Moses doesn't appeal to any inherent goodness or righteousness within Israel itself because he knows there is none. Rather, the basis of Moses' appeal is God's own glory and God's own honor in verse 12. And then in verse 13, Moses appeals to God's love for his covenant people, to God's perfect faithfulness to his covenant people, to the promises the Lord made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And through the prayer of this mediator, Moses, God extends mercy. Now, we should pray like that, shouldn't we? Big prayers, bold prayers that appeal to God's glory and God's honor above all else. How often is God's glory the central concern of our prayer? So as we try to apply what we've talked about tonight, we should pray boldly that God would not just help us to fight our idolatry, but that God would be glorified as we fight and that God will be glorified as we find our ultimate satisfaction, not in idols, but in who he has revealed himself to be in our text tonight. Holy, faithful, merciful, and in love always helping his people, his broken, idolatrous people. Now, we don't have time to cover the rest of chapter 32 in detail, but as mediator, after Moses goes down the mountain, to the people, he then comes back up the mountain to God because he wants to atone or to cover up or to pay for the people's great sin. Yet while Moses does an admirable job as a mediator, there are still a few things that Moses just can't do. Moses can't pay for the people's sin, and Moses can't make an idolatrous people faithful. Moses can't bridge that chasm that exists between the people's idolatry and God's holiness. But Moses points us to the one who can. Just as God sent Moses down the mountain to the people, the Father has sent his son down to an idolatrous people, not just to turn us away from our idolatry, but to live a perfectly faithful life on our behalf, satisfying God's holy law. And whereas Moses goes back up the mountain to try to pay for the people's sin, but he can't, Jesus Christ did go up a mountain, and he mounted a cross, and he did pay the just penalty for the idolatry of all of his people, for all who trust in his name, perfectly satisfying God's holy justice. Jesus is the perfect mediator that reconciles an idolatrous people unto a holy God. Jesus is the ultimate answer to our idolatry problem. And we fight our idolatry by first trusting in and resting in the finished work 
of Jesus Christ who lived a righteous and faithful life on our behalf, perfectly trusting the Father every second of his life. Christ had no idols. And if you're a Christian, if you trust Christ, then his faithfulness is yours. His perfect trust is yours. And more than that, the just penalty of your idolatry, it's his. He paid your penalty with his life, and that's the gospel truth. And we got to get that gospel truth deep down inside of us. We got to dwell on it. We got to meditate on it because that's the foundation from which we fight our idolatry. It's from the firm foundation of Jesus Christ's ultimate victory. And then we take a cue from Moses because we've seen in our passage tonight that Moses gets it. He gets that the human heart is more idolatrous than we can imagine. He gets that God is holier than we can imagine. And he gets that God is more faithful than we can imagine to help his people. So we have to ask the question, why is Moses the only one who gets it in this passage? And the answer to that question is that Moses has been in the presence of the Lord for the last 40 days. He's been communing with God, worshiping God. Moses has been transformed by the Lord and by his word. And it's no different for us. That's how we practically fight idolatry in our day-to-day lives. We behold something greater than our idols. We behold the Lord. And through his word, through prayer, in community, in the local church, the Lord transforms us. And we grow in our love for God and we realize that all of the deepest desires of our hearts, all of them, they all find their perfect fulfillment in our creator. So if worldly power is an idol, behold Jesus, the son of God who upholds the universe by the word of his power, yet who took on weakness, he took on humanity for your sake was obedient to the point of death on a cross for your sake and who rose to life eternal for your sake and whose name is now exalted above every other name such that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's power to trust in. And if material comfort is an idol, behold the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction that we may comfort others. Take comfort that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, that God is working all things together for your good. And if human approval is an idol, behold your creator who treasures you and who before the foundation of the world from an overflow of love for you in his perfect sovereignty, chose to set his holy love upon you by sending you his son, by giving you his spirit, not because you are holy, but to set you apart and make you holy for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. God, we praise you because you alone are worthy of our praise and our worship. You alone perfectly fulfill all the deepest desires of our heart, Lord, as our creator, our redeemer, our Lord. Help us to see you, God, in all your beauty, to love you more, Lord. Transform us, renew our minds, make us a people passionate for your glory and for your kingdom. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.